or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you for guidance. We ask you for wisdom. And we pray you would give it to us that we might live lives that give glory and honor to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we think about wisdom being brought to bear as a resource for our situation, I thought best to tell a foolish story, and it goes like this. An owner of a brand new Corvette had to bring it to the dealer because one of the, it was making a ticking sound. So the engine was making a ticking sound. This Corvette was special to the owner. He had waited 11 months uh, for delivery. So he brings it to the dealership, and the technician looks it over, and he notices a spark plug is loose. So he gets the wrench. He torques that spark plug down. No more ticking noise, and he takes it out. He's a responsible technician, so he takes it out for a spin, wants to make sure it is fixed. Well, he quickly took it up to 75 miles per hour on the interstate, and the performance data recorder, which I guess he didn't understand this thing was equipped with that, a valet mode that works like a black box that shows a video image of what's in front of the car overlaid with the miles per hour and other vehicle data. He forgot about that, I guess, because when a Dodge Charger enters the highway next to him, it's on. And they began racing, and that technician got that Corvette up to 143 miles per hour. At least the data recorder showed 143.6 miles per hour. And eventually they stop racing and he takes it back to the dealership. And what does the owner do? He replays the performance data recorder. And not only is the technician in hot water, but the owner will not accept from the dealer the offer to get the car detailed. That's not enough. And so eventually they start negotiations and finally the dealer had to offer him a trade on a new uh, Corvette at their expense. Now I tell you that story to illustrate foolishness to you because at another California dealership nearby, two months earlier, this exact same thing happened. And it's even more foolish because it happened two other times. You would figure if this happened three times previous that the technician would know, do not exceed the speed limit in test driving these cars. But nonetheless, we live in foolish times. And if we contrast foolishness with wisdom, we come to see, and this is the way I would define wisdom, wisdom is understanding our situation understanding our world from a biblical perspective and then acting in ways that honor and glorify God. So wisdom contrasted with foolishness, maybe foolishness is repeating uh, our errors, not learning from history, not learning that this situation with the Corvette had happened 
previously. Wisdom is understanding our situation, our life, our perspective from a biblical perspective and then responding accordingly in ways that honor and glorify God. And I tell you that because wisdom is something that we can ask for. We saw that in our James series early on, James chapter 1, verse 5. If we're in trials, what do we do? Ask God for wisdom. And God gives wisdom generously, we're told. And that's so important that we would understand that the hard things we're going through serve a spiritual purpose. And so we ask God that we might see that spiritual purpose and come to value what we are gaining in the trial spiritually more than that which we lose in the hardship. Now, I tell you about Agur, and here in Proverbs 30, Agur is clearly tired. He's worn out. We read in verse 1, I am weary, O God, and worn out. What does he do to address being worn out? Does he reach for more coffee? Does he reach for an energy drink? Does he go on vacation? No, what happens is he brings to bear the very wisdom of God, and it addresses and helps his weariness. So we're going to look at how we might avail ourselves of the wisdom of God to help us in our weariness as we think about how the weary world rejoices. If we are weary, there's good news. If we're going to rejoice in the midst of our weariness, we have got to have the wisdom of God. And you see that come across four ways, and there's an outline in your bulletin, four questions that Agur answers as he brings to bear the wisdom of God on his weariness. And the first one is, who am I? And that question, who am I, it's really, who are we? Who is mankind? And Agur, you see in verse 1, the words of Agur, son of Jekka, that's the sum total of what we know about him right there. Everything else is speculation. And while Solomon is the primary author of Proverbs, there is a collection of sayings from both Agur and if you turn the page there to Proverbs 31, the words of King Lemuel. And so, Agur here writes, we don't know anything more about him than what we're told in verse 1, but we do know he is weary. He is weary and worn out. And he begins his journey out of that weariness by answering the question, who he is. And he begins with, there in verse 2, a confession, and it is a very humbling, maybe even humiliating one. Look at verse 2, surely I am too stupid to be a man, I have not the understanding of a man. I would be speculating, we don't know what happened in Agur's life, but he perhaps is regretful of some actions that he has taken, but he comes humbly confessing his own limitations. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. And kids, that word stupid is in the Bible. I have not the understanding of a man. And what he is doing here, he's declaring his own limitations. His own limitations, that he has limitations that are both physical and intellectual. He confesses in verse 3, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. He 
declares the limitations of his understanding and his knowledge of who God is. Who are the best people to talk with? They're the humble ones. The prideful ones, you can't tell them anything. And to be prideful, to think you have to know everything, is exhausting and weary. There's a real freedom. There's a real freedom in saying, I don't know. I don't know. There's a real freedom in understanding your own limitations that you don't have to control everything. This is a primer for entertaining family. You don't have to control everything. It is exhausting and wearying to do that. And so, Agur here begins with his own limitations of knowledge, his own limitations of understanding. He is humble to declare these things and to see that in his limited understanding about himself and about God, there is real freedom and rest. There is an alleviation of weariness if we understand that we are made as finite beings who cannot do everything and do not know everything. And it allows room in our life to avail ourselves of the wisdom of God. And so we begin here, if we're going to find alleviation for our weariness, we begin with who we are, and a right view of ourself, our, our right view of self here is key to understanding how the wisdom of God is brought on our situation. So we begin with the right view of self. Who am I? Agur declares here his own limitations. But then he moves to who God is. That's in verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? It's a Declaration of God's power, maybe a hint at the incarnation. We're going to come back to that. But Agur writes, who has gathered the wind in his fists? He writes there in verse 4. In other words, he's using anthropomorphic language. He's assigning human characteristics to God. God doesn't have a body as we do. He is a spirit. But he's writing this way because of his own limitations. This is the only language he knows. The only way he can express as a finite person, to the eternal. And so he extols the power of God. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Now this language here, it's reflective. Maybe you recognize it from Job chapter 38 through 42. It's reflective of these kinds of questions that get asked there at the end of Job as God displays his power and the greatness of who he is. So who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And so Agur is declaring the greatness of who God is and his power, his sovereignty. What is his name? You know, in the ancient world and in the Bible in particular, that the names of people are important and they are reflective of the nature of who people are. So who is God? What is his name? But then notice here in verse 4, is this not curious? What is his son's name? And there is no good explanation for why Agur would write this way. 
except that somehow, supernaturally, it's a reference to he who would come and embody wisdom himself, Jesus Christ. You can read the commentaries, you can read the skepticism and suppositions of the rabbinic literature, you will not find a good explanation for what is his son's name except moved by the Spirit. Agur declares this inspired word to us, pointing to he who would embody, he who would personify wisdom itself, Jesus Christ. Of course, we understand Proverbs on the other side of the cross. We have the advantage in the New Testament and the empty tomb, and we can look and read about the wise interactions of Jesus there in the gospel accounts. Jesus embodying wisdom, pointing to wisdom from God. Remember, we define it this way, understanding our situation and world from a biblical perspective and responding in God-glorifying ways. Jesus did this perfectly, and our lack of wisdom is best answered in He who came for us to rectify all our foolishness and to pay the penalty for our sin. Christmas is both miracle and mystery of how Jesus came. And this verse, what is his son's name, points to the solution to our weariness, points to the solution to our foolishness in him who is wise beyond all imagining. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, verse 3, Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, we cannot understand Proverbs except from the source of wisdom found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the example of wisdom, but he is also the power for wise living. We would not give up our foolish ways except through the power of Jesus Christ and he who lavishly and generously invites us to give up our foolish ways and find life in him. And so, who am I? Who is God? And we move to another question here. So we're thinking about wisdom brought as a resource for our weariness. We've got to be able to answer this question, who, who are we? We're limited in our finite nature. We are weary. Who is God? Infinite, eternal, unchangeable, powerful. And then what has God said? And this is in verses 5 and 6. And we read, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. If you are weary and tired, if you're exhausted with this world, then you need the grounding, you need the truth that comes to us from God's Word. So Agur follows this reasoning. He says, something is wrong with me. He seeks an answer from who God is 
And then he seeks to ground his life in the truth of God's word. Verse 5, every word of God proves true. Part of the weariness that we experience comes to us because we need refuge. We need a shield from the spiritual battle that's waging all around us. And we read here that he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And we take refuge in him when we take what God has said as more important than what the world declares. Anchored in the truth, the scripture reflects in a confused world the way we should go. God's word illumines then the path for us to pursue in this confusing world. And we're instructed here in verse 6, do not add to his words. And you see that happening as people declare, oh, the Bible didn't really say that. Well, in point of fact, it does. And we're warned here not to add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. There is a pointing there to the contention that God will judge and he will be found true. And so what God has said energizes us to pursue him, to follow him, and to see our situation from a biblical perspective and know and understand how we can live in a way that glorifies him. Because things are confusing now. Things are confusing now. If I were to ask you, how many genders are there? Just Google how many genders there are. It's so confusing. We believe there's two genders, male and female. He created them. And yet we have men who cannot perform well enough in their own sports to podium to come in first, second, or third. So what do they do? They go over to the women's side and they compete in women's sports. There's all manner of confusion surrounding this and denigration towards women athletes. We have new words coming up all the time. There's gaslighting, cultural appropriation, cisgender, critical theory, intersectionality, microaggression, allyship. It'll make your head spin. How do we stay abreast of all these different terms and new definitions? You don't have to. If you are grounded in God's word, you're equipped to navigate all these different issues in ways that commend the gospel to others and show a tenderness, a mercy, and compassion for those who are confused. Understand, I'm not advocating, I want to be an equal opportunity offender here. I'm not advocating for conservative values. I'm not advocating for liberal values. I'm advocating for kingdom values. And you know what? Kingdom values are not halfway in between liberal and conservative. Kingdom values come from outside of this world. And the embodiment of those kingdom values was born in Bethlehem, and he is where we find true hope. So now you know I'm preparing you for 2024 election year. What has God said 
should govern our life as we bring this wisdom to bear on our weary souls, that we would know how to navigate the world not because of what others have said, but because of what God has said. So, so far, what you see, Agar, he's tired. He is weary. He is worn out. Where does he find help? A right and biblical view of who he is, and you see the humility there, a right and biblical view of who God is. And you see God's power there in verse 4. Then he grounds himself with what God has said. Every word of God proves true. And then he prays. He prays. And the question is, what would you ask God for? That's an interesting question. What would you pray for? In verses 7 and 8, at the end of this passage, in this journey from weariness to wisdom... Agar prays. Look at verse 7. Two things I ask of you. What is asking God of something except prayer? So two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. And we'll pause there for a moment because he's bringing his own limitations and finiteness to this prayer. What he learned in verses 2 and 3 about himself, he brings to this prayer understanding that he is not going to live in this life forever. So there is this immediacy to his prayer. He knows his time, his days are numbered. And what does he pray for? Verse 8, two things. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. See, I told you I was preparing you for the presidential election that's going to happen next year. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. That's the first thing he prays for. And the second is, give me neither poverty nor riches. So remove far from me falsehood and lying. It is exhausting to believe lies. It is exhausting and wearying to listen to people try to shape and craft reality using falsehood. So he asks that it be removed far from him. Notice here, he's asking God to remove it. He's not taking this on. That would be back to the exhaustion. He doesn't have to correct everyone. He leaves it to God to do that. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and then he prays the second thing. Give me neither poverty nor riches. He goes on to say, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's a very wise prayer that asks for him to be somewhere in the middle, to be able to deal with and navigate having a lot, and to be able to deal with and navigate having a little. You have to be in wisdom able to deal with and able to deal without to navigate life, this life God has for us. His chief concern in verse 9 is to give glory to God. This is our purpose as believers in Jesus Christ. Our purpose is to point the way and give glory to God and honor His name. And you see that reflected in verse 9. He doesn't want to be so full and satisfied that he forgets who God is, who is the Lord. That's rich people problems, isn't it? Our wealth insulates us from our need 
for Christ. Our dependency on God is inversely related to how much money we have in the bank sometimes. Isn't that true? So he says, lest I be full and deny you. He wants to be in a place of dependency upon the Lord. Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, to dishonor God. He doesn't want the problems of poverty, which are numerous, desperate, doing without, not having options. These are the problems of poverty. He asks that the Lord would spare him of that because his chief concern is not his comfort, but his chief concern is the honor of the name of my God. He asks as well, you know, there's rich people problems too. And while we might prefer rich people problems, money can bring all kinds of problems to people and to families. You would think that the Hollywood stars and rich people would know how to navigate life. After all, they have unlimited resources, but you see problem after problem of those who have riches. A survey was done a couple months ago. This is making the rounds now. And it... uh, had a sample size of 2,000 adults. So it was a pretty good size adult uh, sample. And they were doing a survey about riches and wealth and everything. And so they asked, you know, can money buy happiness? Can money buy happiness was one of the questions on this survey. Six out of 10 people said yes. Six out of 10 people think that money buys happiness. Well, there was a follow-up question. Follow-up question, well, what's the price of happiness? Put a price on it. How much would you need to be happy? $1.2 million is the average answer. How much do you need to be happy? $1.2 million. That's what they said. And then they asked by generational cohort, Okay, so generational cohorts, you've got, you got five in America right now, but, but four, four of generational cohorts that they asked, Gen Z, the youngest, millennials, Gen X, and then boomers. They asked them, well, if money can buy happiness, what does your annual paycheck need to look like for that to happen? And in three generational cohorts came out with 120 to 130,000. It was kind of somewhere in that, in that range. And one cohort said four times that, 525,000. That would put you between the top one and two percent earners in America. That's what they said they needed to be happy. And let me tell you, that's the recipe for unhappiness. You want to be unhappy, attach conditions to your happiness. You want to be even more unhappy, attach monetary conditions to your level of happiness. And you see that Agar shows us a way here 
to remove attaching material gain with a price tag. And he asked the Lord in this wisdom for not too much and not too little, but to be content with just enough, with enough that he would glorify and honor God in his behavior. What does it show us? It shows us that in wisdom, we need to be careful what we ask for. We need to be careful what we desire. It shows us that if we attach monetary conditions on our level of happiness, we will not ever be happy because we will always want just a little more or just a lot more in some cases. But to ask for what is needful is the wise thing to do. So don't set conditions on your happiness. These are the words of Agur. These are words to live by. He's worn out. He's tired. Where's the solution come, come from? It doesn't come from inside of himself. It comes from outside with this wisdom of God. And the wisdom comes for our weariness in showing us we have limitations. Don't avoid that. Embrace them. That's what Agur does in verses 2 and 3. He is humble to do that. And that movement down causes him to look up and to see the greatness of who God is there in verse 4. He anchors himself in a confusing world then. In our confusing world, we can be anchored and navigate with the truth of God's word. That's in verses 5 and 6. And then what does he ask for? He asks for contentment. Contentment is wanting what you already have. We get in trouble when we don't want what we have. And he invites God to work in such a way that he would remove from him falsehood and lying and that he would have neither poverty nor riches, all for the purpose of honoring God. There is wisdom and help for our weariness right here in God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, we ask that you would give us help for our weariness, our spiritual weariness. Thank you that you have given us the ultimate hope in the person of Jesus Christ. What is his name and what is his son's name points us to a savior who lived the perfect life because we never could. He who embodied wisdom was born in Bethlehem and showed compassion on the confused masses that we too might love our neighbors well and serve them in ways that invite them to consider the love and the greatness of God as help for our weariness. We pray we would...